You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a book about AI entitled Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. The COVID pandemic forced many schools and universities to remote education where students logged onto video calls for their classes. At one level, the technology was helpful in giving students opportunities to continue learning despite being limited to their homes. Yet during the pandemic, there was a startling increase in online monitoring software designed to prevent student cheating on exams. Some universities have found significant student cheating at many levels of the education process. For example, one class at North Carolina State University caught one quarter of the students cheating on an exam that had personalized questions. The University of Pennsylvania reported a 71% increase in cheating allegations over the past year, and Texas A&M University found a 50% increase in cheating investigations. To deal with this issue, a number of schools have deployed online surveillance tools that monitors if students checked books or notes, consulted with someone else, or used the internet to find possible answers. Some companies claim that the number of exams that it oversaw more than tripled uh, during the course of the pandemic. Yet there have been a number of complaints about this online monitoring. Observers say that the software is grossly intrusive, causes excessive anxiety among students, discriminates against minority students, and doesn't work very well in catching cheaters. So clearly, there are lots of unanswered questions regarding how schools should deal with student cheating. To deal with these issues, we are pleased to be joined by David Redinger and Lindsay Barrett. David is a professor of psychological science and director of the Academic Integrity Program at the University of Mary Washington. He also is the president emeritus of the International Center for Academic Integrity. Lindsay is the Fritz Family Fellow at Georgetown University Law Center and the author of a paper entitled Rejecting Test Surveillance in Higher Education. David, I want to start with you. You direct a program on academic integrity, so have experience with questions of student cheating. In your view, how prevalent is student cheating? Well, student cheating is prevalent. It's been common for a long time, and I do think we've seen a spike during the course of the last couple of years. Don McCabe and his co-authors have been doing work to survey the frequency of academic integrity violations for decades. And the numbers remain remarkably consistent. About 60% of students, give or take, will admit to one of a list of pretty common academic integrity violations or misconduct behaviors. I think that number's probably gone up somewhat during the pandemic, but it's been surprising. People have talked for decades about how Things are getting so much worse in terms of academic misconduct. But in actuality, while there have been a lot of changes up until the pandemic, I don't think we were on a dramatic increase. So just a quick follow-up, how are universities dealing with student cheating and how widespread is the use of online software to monitor student behavior? 
Well, universities are dealing with it in as many different ways as there are different universities, to be honest. So you get a range of responses from the technological draconian transactional at one end of the spectrum. And those are institutions that are basically looking to punish students after the fact and surveil them, but without much other change to the things that they're doing. At the under end of the spectrum, you have institutions that either already were or becoming highly reflective about teaching practices and assessment practices in response to the obvious weaknesses that they've demonstrated during the pandemic. In terms of how many institutions are using this online surveillance tools, I couldn't say, but certainly they've grown a lot in the last year or so as so many other as so many schools have gone to remote learning. I think it's also important to distinguish between remote learning and, and genuine online learning in a conversation like this. Online learning, which is really optimized to be online and uses all the tools that, that online platforms can provide, tends to be a lot more robust to academic misconduct than the quick slapdash remote learning that a lot of us had to put together during the pandemic, where we basically port the same teaching mechanisms to a virtual space. That has been much less robust to resisting academic misconduct. Lindsay, you wrote a paper entitled Rejecting Test Surveillance in Higher Education and have been critical of this move towards online monitoring software. Why do you find these tools to be so problematic? There's a whole list of reasons. It's unfortunately pretty horrible stuff. In terms of, we're talking about software that involves identification protocols using facial recognition. That's been repeatedly demonstrated to have higher error rates for people of color, particularly women of color. They also tend to involve test takers taking their tests on camera with video and audio. So sitting sometimes with a human proctor, sometimes with an automated element or having somebody pop in and pop out. But imagine sitting in your home, watching somebody just stare at you as you take your test. They also involve automated flags of behaviors that the program deems risky. And that list of behaviors is a mile long and incredibly subject to arbitrary and discriminatory flagging. So we're talking about looking away from a computer screen for more than four seconds, any noise that could possibly indicate, according to the program designers, the presence of somebody who's not supposed to be in the testing room. And those kinds of flags are unfortunately not very well tailored to sussing out cheating, but they are often fairly carefully tied to behaviors that have been deemed atypical. So we're, we're thinking gaze or movement or noise patterns that the person writing the software has decided are not typical. That's going to bring in disabled students. So a student with Tourette's might be flagged for uh, making a noise or a movement that the program doesn't expect. And we're also talking about a pretty invasive software in terms of data collection and the risks to the test takers' computer. So all in all, you have surveillance software that is very privacy invasive, freaks students out, puts disabled students at a risk of being wrongly flagged, has students of color being not recognized by the computer and being told you're not a person. And then you also have the fact that it, these programs don't always work. Because there's the, the heuristics that are discriminatory. There's also just them picking up the wrong signals and being unable to either prevent or deter cheating. And I, I really liked how David framed the spectrum of university responses of reflective to draconian. The use of remote proctoring software, I think, and it, and it does seem to have been quite prevalent during the pandemic, 
was reflexive and and it is draconian. It it is not at all well tailored to what schools are trying to achieve, and it is severely harming students. So, Lindsay, do you think these problems are so serious that universities should stop using monitoring software, or is it just a matter of using it in a different way, a better way, in a way that uh, somehow deals with some of the issues that you've raised? I think they should just throw it in the trash. At the end of the day, we're talking about software that is just not necessary to assess students in an effective and fair way. Even assuming that it worked well, which it does not, you look at the list of how it exacerbates existing inequities in higher education for students with disabilities, for students of color, for low-income and first-generation students, go down the list. Already those harms would outweigh the purported benefits. But then you have the fact that it doesn't work very well, and there's a zillion alternatives that instructors can be turning to, and many of them have. It's funny because a lot of the research that I did in this paper was pretty depressing and demoralizing in terms of how students have been treated and how they how they have responded to the software and stories of them not being listened to and feeling like they don't belong in their educational environment because they're being accused and told that they're bad people, that they're suspicious, that they're cheating when they're not. But one thing that I found really inspiring was how many instructors found just incredibly creative ways to not have to rely on testing during remote learning. And so at the end of the day, we're talking about immensely harmful, often very expensive software that doesn't do what it's supposed to do when there are all kinds of methods that instructors can be turning to instead. Like, for example, David also mentioned open book tests and changing methods. You can have reports. You can encourage collaboration instead of saying that collaboration means that you're cheating. You can have any number of different assignments that don't rely on a closed book, time-limited test. And that's what schools should be doing, looking to more creative tactics that will assess students fairly and ensure that they're not buying expensive, horrible software that is discriminatory and invades student privacy. David, what is your view of online monitoring software? Does it have a proper place on college campuses, or is it too problematic to be used in higher education? I'm with Lindsay. It's worse than bad. It's counterproductive. And from a psychological or interpersonal standpoint, it's maybe even worse than it is from a technological standpoint. The lesson that there's all of this invasive surveillance sends to students is, we don't trust you, we expect you to do the wrong thing. And guess what? When you tell students we expect you to do the wrong thing, they listen. Students are very attuned to these cues. If you give people a reason to do something that they may otherwise not do, you give them an out to do that without harming their own view of themselves as an honest person. If a student can say to themselves, well, this professor is racist, this professor doesn't trust me, this professor doesn't believe I can do the work. All of those things are going to lead students to maybe attribute this situation to someone other than them. And then guess what? That's a psychological pass to do something less honest. If you think of three key psychological variables in academic dishonesty, one of them is self-efficacy. Does the student believe they could do the work fairly? If by using this software, you're saying to them, yeah, I'm not sure you can, and you might take a shortcut. Another one is going to be their motivation to learn. Are they motivated by learning intrinsic love of the material? Nothing kills that kind of motivation more than a multiple choice test to begin with, let alone 
a multiple choice test on video. Who who would who would be motivated positively by that? Nobody. And then you add in these rationalization neutralizing types of attitudes where you have students blaming other people, um, saying this is an unfair situation and not being wrong about that. And so the result is what you're essentially doing is, Lindsay said correctly, that this undermines the mission of what universities are supposed to be doing, which is helping students learn. However, where I do disagree is that I don't think a lot of universities are taking that mission as seriously as we ought to be anymore. Higher education, it's well-documented, has become commodified. The governor of Virginia about 10, 12 years ago talked about the importance of getting college degrees as opposed to getting college educations, right? And to the extent that we're looking at college as a transaction whereby a student leaves with a degree and an opportunity for a career, then multiple choice testing pushes many students through as possible. The goals change. The goal is not learning. The goal is degree granting. And once that happens, then we begin a whole spiral that leads us to lots more cheating on exams, which leads to the need for surveillance. So long answer to a short question, which is, the technological aspects of surveillance software are really harmful, and the psychological aspects might be worse. So, Lindsay, if we don't use monitoring software during a time of remote or hybrid education, how should schools deal with student cheating? You mentioned there could be a variety of alternatives. What would you recommend they do? There really are so many ideas. Like, you can have more numerous quizzes throughout the semester, you can have long papers graded at multiple stages. You can have student-proposed projects. You can have intentionally collaborative and or intentionally time-open or resource-open assessments. The other part about that is it is pretty rare that these closed-book, post-time assessments bear any relationship to the kind of skills that you are trying to inculcate in, in a student in terms of like the discipline that you're training them in. So. One thing that very much shaped the way that I approached this paper was the use of remote proctoring software on the bar exam. Even before the pandemic, it is such a poor metric of anybody's ability to practice law. It is such a poor safeguard of, of public safety in terms of keeping out lawyers who are misrepresenting their legal skills for grandmas who just want to get a will done or whatever it is. And then you have the software coming in and people being accused of cheating on this metric that just doesn't say anything about them, we can be looking at different assessment models that do a better job of saying, what are the skills you need? What does it actually look like to work in this field? And, and I don't mean to focus too much on work because I, I really loved David's criticism of credentialing focus and concern about focusing too much on, on degree versus education. I think that's so important. But we really need to be thinking about what is the value of this assessment? How does it reflect the conditions and inquiry that a student would be engaging in in this discipline once they leave the school? Because closed book, closed time assessments, hardly ever relevant for any field. And so there's no reason why we should be forcing them on students when there are a million other options, and particularly when using them in concert with this invasive software is so harmful to the students. So David, how do you think a school should deal with student cheating? The thing is, multiple choice tests are possibly the worst form of assessment that we have. And so spending all this time, money, and energy trying to somehow make them secure seem, seems, I, I describe it often as building a two-foot wall around your house. 
The only people it keeps out are people who had a disadvantage in getting in to begin with. Anyone who's really motivated to get around this assessment software can do it quite easily. Right? I was on a panel with some students who described ways they had heard of their peers doing it. My favorite one of these was someone who put their notes on the, taped it to the window of the room that they were taking the test in. And then as they, they swept the room to show there were no notes there, and then they just opened the blinds after the proctor checked the room. Now, this is not like Magneto-level mind evil, right? This is opening Venetian blinds to get around the software. So at the, at the end of the day, it's super easy to defeat this software with no, nothing more than a set of Venetian blinds. So we get to the problem is that multiple choice tests are easy to cheat on, and they're terrible assessments of knowledge. They're great assessments of knowledge that you have for about 20 minutes. If you want your students to have the knowledge for longer than 20 minutes, then you need to do something different to entice them to study in ways that will lead to long-term retention. And those are all the things that Lindsay just mentioned. So get rid of the software. And to the extent that your institution can do this, reconceptualize a learner-centered focus and make your assessment part of your learning process. So for example, I give weekly quizzes instead of exams. And yes, I acknowledge that they're multiple choice. But here's a critical difference. The students write the questions. So their weekly assignment before, uh, before Sunday night is to write a set of multiple choice questions that will be, that they think are hitting on the most important aspects of the week's lesson. And then I choose the questions from that set. So every student has to be reflective about what's important in the material. And so I still get the benefit of the ease of online multiple choice testing, but I also force the students to be to do a reflective assignment each week as well. And of course, that means that there's no test bank of questions out there for the students to, to Google the answers to. So that's a very simple, low-touch change that can make a huge difference in the student's learning experience. Of course, building much bigger changes like uh, student-directed writing assignments, team projects, all of that good stuff. Those are all much more effective assessments in terms of the kinds of knowledge we want students to have. And they lead to much better learning. And by the way, they're much harder to cheat on. Well, those are great ideas from uh, each of you. Lindsay, beyond classroom monitoring, there has been an increase in digital surveillance on many campuses. This includes the installation of cameras all over the school, the use of facial recognition software to identify people, and software that tracks what students and professors do online. How worried should we be about this spread of digital surveillance? Pretty worried. I found it pretty encouraging how robust the response to remote parking software has been from students, parents, and instructors, and, and sometimes administrators. So worried in that the spread is there, the dangers are real. I don't want to, for a moment, suggest that the the technology is inevitable or that it is necessarily here to stay because the responses that we've seen to, to the use of, of facial recognition, laws limiting its use or even moratoria or bans, all, all of this stuff is defeatable and not inevitable. But we are talking about concerning technology. So in the case of facial recognition, I mentioned before the, the research demonstrating that many of the models in use fail disproportionately for people of color, particularly women of color. So you consider a a surveillance system where you you already have 
discriminatory disparate errors, the fact of being surveilled will chill students' free speech. The, have, using these surveillance systems to monitor protesters is something that we've seen. And in terms of what we want higher education to be enabling and allowing students to explore, that's the exact opposite of anything that that schools should be investing in and often spending lots of money on. It's not as though companies are, maybe there's the free tier that they try to get you hooked on, but eventually none of this is free. And so you're both paying a lot to, to harm your students and to invade their privacy and dampen their free expression. So we should be worried. I'm not at all resigned or believe that it is impossible to defeat this of this stuff, but it does concern me, particularly the the potential of using invasive surveillance technologies and the normalizing effect that that can have on other parts of life. Because you're at college, you're young, you're learning how to be a person, you're told, well, you know what, the system's around and we can always see where you go. You should expect that in life. That is something normal that will occur to you. That is not normal. That should not be normal. And we don't want to teach students that it is. So, David, your thoughts on this increase in digital surveillance in general on campus and how worried we should be about that? What I can talk about is the importance of a feel of community and trust and respect on campuses. One of the things that, that has been well documented over the years is the benefits to, on academic integrity to honor systems. Uh, honor systems have the challenges, to be sure, but one of the core features of a traditional honor system is this community-based approach to academic integrity and student integrity more generally. And so, and that comes from a notion that the students are accountable to one another and that to a, a feeling of community. And so it strikes me that these surveillance approaches to dealing with student behavior are going to undermine all of those feelings of respect, trust, and community that we found to be so effective in helping students to do what they understand to be the right thing. And so I, I, it just seems to me that from the, from the human side of, of this, that the technology is going to do exactly what Lindsay suggested, which is cost a lot of money to harm your students. Lindsay, do you have any personal pointers for the average student or teacher or professor in terms of what he or she can do to protect privacy during an era of digital surveillance? We should keep in mind one of the biggest problems in the in privacy debates and surveillance debates is a focus on the individual and the idea that if 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 you're use if you're going to a website and not reading the privacy policy then you deserve what happens to you when we're dealing in a system where privacy risks are unavoidable the the methods that we're given to protect ourselves from them are woefully inadequate so there so there's never a situation where i would want to frame it as if you're not doing these things, then you deserve what happens to you because that is not the case. So with remote proctoring in particular, and I, I go into this a bunch in the paper, so much of the marketing around this software emphasizes student choice and do not use this software if you are uncomfortable with the risks or this is all up to you. The choice is on the students, the teachers. Of course it isn't. Most schools are not giving students choices as to whether or not they can use this for for a quiz or a test never mind the fact that once you're you know what is the choice like don't take the class or 
or take a test that you're that would force you to if you look away from the computer screen for more than four seconds you're accused of cheating like that's that's not a meaningful choice so all that by means of saying these what can you do on an individual level is quite broad and that it is crucial to focus on where choice is a false narrative and where we really need to be focusing on these bigger structural issues that said i mentioned before that i am really enthused by or uh, inspired by how much pushback there has been from students, from parents, from instructors. So if if this is you, if this is your kid, if this is your your school, then be the person who says, if I have a problem with this, then this is why. Obviously that is a responsibility that if you're a student and there are all kinds of reasons why there's a power differential that you might not be comfortable pushing back in certain situations. It it is not as though everybody is in a position to go off and march, but Within your ability, it is so important to to work with work with your fellow students, work with your fellow teachers, work with your fellow parents, and say this stuff is not okay. I don't want my kids subjected to it. I don't want to be subjected to it. I don't believe that it reflects the values of my of my vocation. I don't want to subject students to it. And do what you can to find other methods. So it it really. I think is is less of what can you do to protect yourself and more how can we work together to to tear this out from the root. That four second rule on looking away from the computer does seem completely outrageous. It's wild. There's so many. I, I wish I had my scroll for 50 pages and find my intricately footnoted list of the various behaviors, but it's the most anodyne things that then students are flagged for doing and then they're given these automated risk assessments of, oh, so-and-so is suspicious because they were fidgeting too much during the exam or because they looked away or because they live in a multi-generational house and someone else dared to make a noise at the, over the course of two or three hours. So David, your sense in terms of any personal pointers you have for people in terms of how they can protect their privacy during this era of digital surveillance? I think that the, the best Thing you can do as a student or especially as a prospective student is to give some thought to the kind the values of the institutions that you're considering it's bigger than just privacy although privacy is a huge issue if you attend a school where your professor is a tiny speck in the distance and your testing is all done multiple choice either online or in person and graded by teaching assistants who may be amazing, I should point out. This is a school that's trying to pump through as many undergraduates as possible. And so that's possibly the role that you're going to play for them as an institution. And so if you look at a school that has personalized attention, smaller classes, opportunities for you to get engaged, all of those things that we understand to be really good for undergraduate education, those are places that are going to be less likely to be treating you as a widget and surveilling you in these really disappointing ways. So I think it's part of the larger ecosystem of finding a place where your educational path is valued as opposed to your tuition money, although, of course, we all love your tuition money. But really take seriously the idea of what are you going to be getting out of this education besides a diploma. And if the school seems to be creating those kinds of experiences, there's a good chance that they're going to treat you as a holistic, three-dimensional human as well. 
Great advice. I want to thank David and Lindsay for sharing their thoughts with us today. At Brookings, we write regularly about questions of surveillance and digital technology. You can find more information on our Brookings Tech Tank blog located at brookings.edu. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.